Trigger warning, this podcast contains a brief discussion about suicide and suicidality, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker, as always. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have an atta and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for this episode is a writer and current contributing editor at The Critic magazine. His name is Ben Sixsmith and I came across Ben through various appearances he's done on Friend of the Pod Alex Kashuta's Subversive podcast and Benjamin Boyce's Conversations. Ben is the founder of his substack The Zone and currently resides in Poland. In this episode we discuss how he got into and fell into writing through writing for outlets like Quillette and Ario magazine respectively before he got work with outlets like The American Conservative and The Spectator. We explore some of the articles he's written on topics including male stoicism, the pros and cons of meaning and its absence in the current mental health conversation and the work he has done writing about men with eating disorders. We also discuss Ben's own experience with both anorexia and bulimia during his university degree, which forced him to drop out altogether. We talk about how he managed to turn his life around and how moving to Poland was a big part of that. We finish by discussing the internet's role in the mental health conversation and the very bizarre ways it can influence the human consciousness. So this is how my check-in with Ben Sixsmith went. Ben, thank you so much for joining me on the Just Checking In podcast. We've had a bit of technical difficulties my end before we joined this. So yeah, apologies for that. If I sound a bit flustered, it's because I've been massively frustrated with technology for the last 15 minutes. I came across you through your appearance on Alex's podcast, Subversive, and I've listened to a couple of other interviews you've done with Benjamin Boyce and some of your writings too. First off, how are you, mate? How's your Sunday going? It's going very well, thank you, and a very cold Polish weekend day. It's pretty much the same here in the UK, to be honest, at the moment. It was pretty bitter this weekend, so exactly the same, to be honest. And the only reason I get through this period is the run-up to Christmas, so it feels cold but Christmassy. After that, it's pretty grim in Jan, I can't lie. I have a strong feeling we're going to have some really great discussions on this podcast, mate. And I've also read some of your articles on your mental health journey, so I'm really interested to talk about that too. Without further delay, are you ready to start the show? We're going to talk about your writing journey first, mate, because it started out like many journalists or writers do as a side hustle first. So tell me how and why you got into it, what perhaps writing does to your mental health and the journey to where you are today. Well, I mean, I've always been writing like many people, just as a way to kind of organize thoughts and pursue different imaginative leaps. I was writing for many years on the internet for no money at all, just little blogs that nobody read. And thank God nobody read them because they were shite. <laughs> And then I was also on Twitter fairly early on and uh, started writing for online magazines when they were quite small, like Quillette and Aereo. And because of various little online political trends, those magazines became much more successful and kind of carried me along in their wake as well. So it became something that I could monetize to some extent. And then I just kind of gradually built up my portfolio and my reputation, if I can give it so grand a term. And yeah, stumbled on to where I am today. You now work for The Critic as their contributing editor. So when did you get a sense that the momentum was picking up? Because you were also writing for previous to this, sometimes bigger outlets like The American Conservative and The Spectator. When did you get a sense that there was some real momentum here that you could really pursue it as a full-time career instead of just the side hustle previously? It's a hard one because there's never really a moment where you realize (laughs) that your life has changed, except for when you're looking back and you think, well, when did it change? I remember the first time someone asked me to write a piece where I'd never pitched to them before, which was The Spectator World. And that was a big step because I couldn't believe that I wouldn't have to send someone a hundred obnoxious emails before they'd agree 
to let me write from them. So that was a big step. And then I think, yeah, it just, it just slowly becomes easier to have a door opened when you knock on it and more people reach out to you. No one stage. I think just the easier it was to write for places, the money they give you becomes very slightly more substantial. It's a gradual process. I want to talk about some of the topics you were keen to discuss in this part now, Ben. And the first one was the concept of meaning. And I guess it's polar opposite concept, meaninglessness. Can you unpack this for me and explain what you wanted to talk about through a mental health lens? Sure. I think everybody has some sense of the meaning that they give to their life. Obviously, there are a million different kinds of meaning that people can give to their life. For some reason, it's being really good at chess. And for some reason, it's some people, sorry, it's having a large family. And for some people, it's running their own business, whatever. And then there's meaning in kind of a collective sense where people can form relationships and communities and institutions around some concept or some rituals or some traditions that unite them. And I think, obviously, we still have the former. I don't want to demean anyone's ambitions for their own life, but to some extent, we're lacking the latter. Mm. And I think a lot of my writing is about pursuing uh, little avenues in which more collective meaning can be pursued. You said to me off air something really interesting. You said that sometimes awareness of an issue can be helpful or unhelpful. Am I right in remembering that? What did you mean by that? Well, I think we were talking about mental health awareness yes. and awareness of various mental conditions and social conditions. And as I recall, what I was arguing is not necessarily that more knowledge isn't necessarily good. Of course, it's good to know what affects you and what affects other people, but it doesn't accomplish anything on its own. I think sometimes there's a perception that the more we talk about an issue, somehow it's just going to get better. Whereas actually... Sometimes talking about an issue resolves nothing because you don't come across a solution or you don't come across something which eases it. And then I, to some extent, I think talking about something can sometimes make it worse in the sense that people can just ruminate on a problem that potentially, obviously not always because some things are fundamentally unfixable, but potentially could be resolved or eased if uh, it was pursued in a slightly more practical or active way where do you draw the line on that because it's pretty hard i guess to draw that in totality so say for example it would be good or better to have knowledge of how to treat borderline personality disorder which is something that's not very well known about in the mental even in the mental health space but there's also other issues which are perhaps mainstream in air quotes mental health conditions like anxiety and depression which are vastly more talked about so where do you draw the line with mental health and I guess where do you draw the line with other societal issues there's awareness and awareness so obviously there are some conditions where we need more awareness of them within certain spaces if there's a mental illness where state institutions and societal institutions aren't helping the sufferers as effectively as they should we need awareness within those institutions but kind of a general vague awareness within the whole population isn't necessarily accomplishing anything. Though, of course, it might. There's also a difference between some conditions that need very specific kinds of treatment. I don't have specific knowledge of those conditions, but, you know, uh, the things we could call illnesses. And then there are the kind of more vague problems like anxiety. I don't want to say depression, because obviously clinical depression is an illness, but depression in the broader sense of kind of frustration and ennui and grief, where there's not really like a one size fits all solution to them. For some people, talking about them is going to be very effective. And that's great. For some people, becoming a marathon runner could be effective. It just dep it depends on the person. Yeah, agreed. and I think sometimes the way we talk about them can imply that there's just a general kind of implicit policy we should be following where, you know, you see people online, for example, saying, oh, everyone should go to therapy. And, you know, maybe therapy is great for them. And, you know, I don't mean any disrespect towards that, but maybe for somebody else, it's not. Yeah, agreed, mate. The next topic you wanted to talk about is stoicism and particularly stoicism in men, which you wrote about in Quillette in an article called In Defense of Stoicism. So tell the listeners what you discussed in that article. 
I should say, in case any philosophers are listening, I didn't mean Stoicism in the, the kind of specific Greek philosophical sense, but in the more vague, colloquial sense of not being especially emotionally expressive, not maybe divulging too much information about oneself. I think this way of thinking and this way of acting can sometimes be unfairly pathologized in our culture as if in everybody, emotional repression, be it deliberate or accidental, is just kind of this dangerous trying to desperately keep a lid on a saucepan as this pot soup is trying to explode. And that's not always the case. Certainly there are people who feel like they're incapable of expressing something that they really would like to express because they don't have helpful people around them because they have consumed unhelpful media. Mm. And in those people, that kind of self-imposed stoicism is extremely unhelpful. But there are other people where it's just how they like to behave. It's an aspect of their personality. It really helps for them to focus on other things. So for example... Someone like me, if I, you know, have to talk about my problems too much outside of drinking in garages with my best friends, it's never going to be something that's very comfortable for me. And it's not because someone came along and told me, you know, boys don't do these things. It's just, it's just who I am. Yeah. So uh, I, again, I think maybe not everybody is different, but people are different in many different ways. And there's not mm-hmm. one societal message that we should be pushing on everybody or in specific genders or or groups i talk a lot on this podcast about a concept called anti-fragility which writer nasim nicholas talib wrote about in his book of the same name do you think that this concept if you're aware of it should be included in the framework around stoicism the idea that essentially for the listeners who don't know anti-fragility is being changed by adverse challenges whereas he describes resilience as being something that you stay the same after something bad happens to you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, For many people, a certain amount of stress and anxiety and fear is something that strengthens their personality and their talents and their skills. I think it can be a very helpful concept. I know for me, a certain amount of stress and worry is almost a necessary component of anything I'm doing. I think if I was really relaxed all the time, I'd get absolutely nothing done. Uh, And again, that doesn't apply to everybody, but I think for certain people, it can be very helpful. We're going to talk about your personal experience of this next topic later in the pod, mate. But the issue you write about, which I think would educate my listeners the most, is eating disorders. So what research have you done in this and how it affects men specifically? Because up until as recently as I would probably say five to maybe eight years ago max, most of the mainstream, if not all, thought eating disorders only really affected women. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it affects men in very different ways. For some people, it's the kind of the bodybuilder who eats 20 cans of tuna a day because... Bigorexia, uh, I think is the, the slang term Big, for that. Bigorexia, yeah. but also kind of orthorexia where yep. there are certain foods that you feel you're allowed to eat and there are certain foods you feel you develop a kind of complex around because, you know, they're trying to keep their body fat so low. And then there are other kinds of men who have more, I'm using air quotes here, traditional anorexia or bulimia, where they are consuming unhealthily low amounts of calories and losing a lot of a great deal of weight. Uh, So it, it does affect men too. I think I haven't done research on this very recently. I think about 10% of people who suffer from eating disorders, at least that we know of, amends. So it is more of an issue for women, but it certainly can be an issue for men too. And sometimes I think less so now, but sometimes that's not appreciated more broadly. When you've spoken to men who have an eating disorder or have overcome it, what tends to have helped them through it and what tends to be the trigger for them developing it? Obviously, you know, every individual is different, but are there any trends? Because we know with eating disorders in women that They are usually, but not always, of course, linked to perhaps poor self-esteem, self-harm, external societal pressures, beauty standards, perhaps a a negative parental influence. What are men experiencing here? I think for many people, women, but also men, maybe men more so, I'm not sure. It's just an unhealthy desire to control aspects of one's life, especially when other aspects of one's life are not in our control. If people are having problems at work, problems at home, They can't really do anything to influence. They focus on something else, which 
they're able to manipulate and able to bring under their own control. I think that can be an unhealthy obsession that guys will look towards. For some people, it's just very context dependent. I mean, I've read about people who, I'm using this example again, it's not this specific, but I've read about people who were going to be in some kind of bodybuilding competition and they were so fixated on this one ambition that it just formed their consciousness around it. And I'm fairly skeptical about the effects of media on our consciousness. I don't have like a very expert attitude towards that. But even so, many people do think that the presentation of people on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube, where people have this Love kind of ideal frame will influence people to try and copy that frame. And yeah, I'm not sure. I'm sure it happens sometimes. I don't know how prevalent it is, but it's certainly a theory. I want to move on to the final issue you want to discuss, Ben. And this is something I've actually already covered with friend of the pod and the brilliant Kat Rosenfield, who you might be aware of, which is this incentive she's spoken about towards confessional writing in some spheres of the writing industry, the media industry, however way you want to call it. Now, Kat spoke about it with female writers. So tell me about your perspective on this. Why is it a problematic trend for you? I think it's problematic because when somebody has had a fairly exceptional or sensational experience, it is fundamentally a good way to get attention from editors, from producers, from whoever is influential in the media fields you want to work in. So it's, it's, it's a good way for especially younger writers to kind of fall back on something that they know that could grab people's eyes and could grab people's clicks. I think the problem is sometimes you're not ready to talk about something. So for example, when I wrote about my mental illness experiences, it took like 10 years before I actually really wanted to talk about it. Sometimes it's just something that's not helpful for people to talk about at all. And other times it's kind of exploitative in the sense that it is something that's interesting to talk about, but you never hear from these people again and they've spilled out their secrets for a hundred dollars and it really hasn't gotten them anywhere in life except attention that they may or may not have wanted. So people have to be very careful before they decide to express certain things about their lives, not because it's bad to express them but just because they have to know that they want to express it and they're ready for people to hear about it. And I think to some extent also editors have to be conscientious about whether they're going to decide that someone is ready to tell a certain story and whether they want to elevate that specific story or whether they just want to get a few more clicks Mm. than they would otherwise get on a Monday morning. Yeah, it's a very difficult topic to, I guess, broach and find out where the line is because... Writing about your mental health is one thing and I've written about it loads and it's helped me massively and I would never be against that. But like you said, if there is this, albeit small, financial incentive to bear your soul so viscerally and publicly on you know, even a regular basis, let alone a one-off, is there a danger that writers who might feel vulnerable in that moment be tempted to reveal details about their private life that perhaps might be better for them, not all, but might be better for them to be kept private for the sake of perhaps their mental health and maybe their loved ones too. Yeah, there's definitely an incentive. I mean, I I can think of a specific writer, I won't name them, but they've got a column in one of the big national newspapers where they talk about their life experiences, which is just inevitably chaotic and tragic and hideous. And I can't help wondering, I mean, I don't know the person myself, so I could be completely off base, but I can't help wondering if there's some extent to which the incentive to keep having terrible and sensational experiences has kind of guided their life. Whereas if they didn't have this very specific job, it's at least possible they would have had a slightly happier and more grounded life because that wouldn't have been very interesting to write about. There was this great old spectator columnist who used to write about his alcoholic experiences. And, you know, maybe he would have been a complete alcoholic anyway. It's quite possible, but If your whole raison d'etre is, I'm the alcoholic columnist who writes about my drinking experiences, you don't have much of an incentive to stop. Mm. Yeah, there is that. Let's reflect on your writing journey now, Ben, before we move on. So what has it taught you about yourself so far, do you think? So first, it's taught me that I'm somewhat capable of working hard because I was a real lazy piece of shit when I was young. And actually, even to when I was older, up until I was about 26, and now I'm 31, uh, just a terrible, unmotivated schlub. 
And when I finally realized there was an open door, thankfully, I was ready to do what it took to wedge myself through it. But it did teach me that any goal that you want to achieve is not just going to come to you. You really need to work and do anything you can to make the time to make it happen. I think to some extent it's taught me to be a little bit more emotionally and intellectually balanced, just because when you're writing, you have that time to think about things and to meditate on them to some extent, rather than just being caught in a kind of maelstrom of thoughts and emotions. But I mean, there's always some extent to which that's going to be incomplete. Your hobbies are never going to make you be the person you want to be, but they might nudge you in that direction. We've talked about Ben, the writer. I want to dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey now, Ben. So firstly, I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Ben we meet here? I think I had a very happy childhood, very lucky childhood. I think you'd have to have really bad luck to be born in Southwest England and not have some level of good fortune and privilege. I had a very good family. I had good friends. Absolutely hated school. I guess that was the only dark point up until my teenage years. Slightly less happy teenage years. I think you need kind of some sense of direction when you're a teenager to be really happy and fulfilled. It doesn't have to be like a career direction. It's not like you have to decide, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. But some direction through your education or your hobbies or even your social life where you have some group of friends who are all kind of pursuing the same implicit goals, even if it's just, you know, we want to go to really good parties. It's still something that you're doing. And I was quite unmoored. I didn't really have anything I wanted to focus on. I read a lot of music magazines without being especially good at playing music or having especially interesting tastes in music, for example. And found it difficult to get on with people, which was as much my fault as it was with theirs. I think in one of my articles about my mental illness, I almost made a virtue of my vices, like I was just too weird in some ways, because I thought it helped me to stand out. But standing out isn't always the best thing to do. Uh, it depends on what you're standing out for. And yeah, never really found my place. And that kind of spiraled as I got older in my teenage years. As that spiral continued, the first and arguably largest part of your mental health journey, Ben, is your experience of anorexia and bulimia, which you went through during your university degree. So firstly, can you tell me how both affected your physical and mental health? Because some people might think anorexia and bulimia are the same thing. And what do you think was the trigger for you developing these? I think it had a lot to do with what I was talking about earlier, which was just it was something in my life that I could give a sense of direction to perception that it was a healthy way of living that was going to give me a more attractive body. At least that's probably how it started. And then it kind of became its own reward, the knowledge that I could control something in a way that other people maybe couldn't and in a way that I couldn't have done before. I think it started with bulimia. I was still enjoying eating, but it was a way of kind of freeing yourself from the regret of eating. And then that, again, kind of spiraled into anorexia. There's a certain extent to which I think people can talk about body image in quite a superficial way, but obviously there's some element of truth to it. I thought I was too fat and I wanted to lose weight. But then it became something that I turned into a pathology just by obsessing over it so much. You wrote an article on Medium about this called Year of the Cold, which really interesting, actually, from a narrative perspective, you wrote in the second person as if you are addressing someone else rather than speaking to yourself. Why did you make that narrative choice in the way that you wanted to vocalise your experience of it? I think because I'm such a different person now, which is not to delude myself into thinking that now I'm just such a great, balanced, healthy guy. But just objectively a very different person. And talking in the first person as if it was me, I found myself thinking, well, I, I can't express these thoughts as me because I can't really relate to them in the same way anymore. And I'd be kidding myself if I was pretending that I could recall exactly how I was thinking about something or exactly how I felt about something because I've traveled so far from that. So my sense of myself... As a 19-year-old, it was almost something external to me. It wasn't a self that I could inhabit anymore. So I thought it made more sense to talk to it rather than at it. Oh, as it, sorry. 
there's one part of the article where you say, quote, when you are malnourished and underweight, you are cold all the time. There is nothing to fuel your metabolism, which slows to a crawl. Every breeze whips through your limbs. In the winter, this is easy enough to rationalize. In the spring, though, when you shiver on a sunny day or press yourself against a radiator on an April afternoon, it is difficult to explain or excuse. So it sounds like here, from my perspective, like the wintry months and your eating disorders dehumanized you almost. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah, they dehumanized in the sense that they strip out so much of what makes us human, like your interests kind of shrivel, uh, your social appetite can shrivel. Uh, not entirely, because, of course, I don't want to imply that just because somebody attends a family gathering, that means they're not really sick. But your obsession with one aspect of your life definitely drains the life out of everything else that you should be enjoying or accomplishing or achieving. That is true to some extent. There seems to be a theme in the article of a Ben you portray whose self-esteem is essentially teetering on the edge. Was this a frustration at yourself? Was it the university course you were doing, your failed expectations of that course or both or neither? Yeah, 100%. I think I thought of university as a place where your life takes off. Like suddenly you're around so many new different people. You're going to make all of these friends you're going to start directing yourself towards a career. I'm not sure why I thought studying creative writing could possibly direct me towards a career. But um, I found myself with the same problems I'd always had at school. I still found it hard to relate to people. I still didn't know what I wanted to do in life. And now I was cut off from family. So all the problems I'd had before were still there, but magnified. And yeah, that did cause a lot of frustration. I realized I just made a mistake in going there at all. And was very annoyed with myself and annoyed at the world, uh, which of course encourages you to obsess over something which isn't healthy to obsess about. One part of the article which I've not come across in people's description of their own eating disorders is you almost politicise it in a way because you say anorexia made you a one-man totalitarian state. So does this come back to the issue of control or as you basically allude to, were you in sworn fealty essentially to it um it's not that conscious but it okay. is in the sense that if you deviate from your standards that you give to yourself you do feel just immense guilt and anger at yourself it is almost like putting yourself on a show trial because you're directing so much criticism so much opprobrium towards yourself so it's not something that you really know you're doing, but it is something that you do to yourself. And it's totalitarian as well in the sense that there are such rigid rules, at least in my experience, and you feel an intense compulsion to follow them. At its worst, when you were in that anorexic state, mate, you got into a near suicidal state of thinking, or at least suicidality. Did you see any way out of it at that point? I don't know how generalizable this is. So I'm not expressing this as a universal experience. I think for most of the time, I wouldn't have thought of myself as sick at all. If yeah. anything, I thought other people were the weird ones. Again, not very consciously, but I was kind of like, well, why do you feel like you need to eat that? Like, I, I don't need to, and I'm, I'm doing fine. I remember I had this ritual where once a week I'd eat a big piece of cake from this cafe. And I was like, well, you know, if I'm eating this big piece of cake, I can't possibly be ill. I don't know what everyone else is worrying about. So yeah, for a long time, I wouldn't have thought of myself as sick at all. I just thought that was how I was. I guess I didn't see a route out of life in general. But the actual illness I was almost blind to in a way that other people mm. weren't. Yeah, I think for many people, even when they realize they're sick, it's almost like being a drug addict and you know, you're addicted, but you don't know how the addiction would possibly stop. So I think that kind of despair where you know that there's a kind of theoretical universe in which you could be better, but you, you give up on the hope of achieving it. I think that is a problem for me. I think once I realized I was really sick and there was at least a possibility where I could not be sick, I had a lot of determination and probably a lot of fortune as well, but a lot of determination to get better. For me, that wake up call seems to come when you felt your heart beating quite irregularly one morning and you immediately take into the hospital where some very concerned doctors performed tests on your heart. Now, 
we have both, I'm sure, read stories of people with eating disorders or anorexia whose hearts have stopped or become overwhelmed in the middle of the night. They've died in their sleep. I certainly can remember some personal experiences of that in my own life. So how much of a wake-up call was it? Was that the moment when you realized that things needed to change? I think I somewhat before I'd realized things had to change, but I wasn't 100% committed to them. Yeah, that's when I 100% committed to them. I mean, ironically, it wasn't as big a health scare as I thought it was because they'd done a heart scan and they just rigged up the heart scan incorrectly. So they thought I was dying when actually I wasn't. But just being in the hospital, seeing the worry of people around you, I think also like anyone who's been to an NHS waiting room knows that generally you might as well take a tent because you're going to be sitting there for a long time. So when you get rushed through the NHS waiting room, that's when you know you're in deep, deep shit. And yeah, I had enough of a sense of wanting to still live and also just not wanting to cause pain for those around me that that really struck me that day. And it gave me a lot of motivation going forward. The best part of the article for me is your parting shot, shall we say, because you say, quote, I spent much of the last decade doing my damnedest not to be the person that you were. I have tried and often failed, but tried to make something of life and overcome neuroses and be someone who supports others more than being supported. But I admire you. Now, I struggle to transcend my petty faults, to be organised at work, to be calm in arguments, to resist the temptation to have another drink. You struggled with almost everything that made you you. That is not exceptional, of course. A lot of people do it many of them with more severe conditions or without the blessing of supportive families. But I wanted to write down a word of thanks 10 years on because without you, those 10 years would never have been. Was that you forgiving your past self or was it thanking him? I think, yeah, I mean, I think both because now I can't inhabit the mindset of the person who is recovering as well as the mindset of the person who was sick. Again, it takes a lot of fortune. I don't, I don't want to suggest that people who do recover from eating disorders are kind of just a better class of people. I had a very good family around me. I had the fortune where I didn't need to work. I could go on with a list of privileges. But it still took a lot of determination, as it does in anyone who recovers from an eating disorder. And it's a determination that now I can't imagine applying to anything. So I think it was forgiving and and thanking that past self. You also made the decision to drop out of university. So at the time, how difficult was it? How do you reflect on that decision? And was that the start of your recovery? Or like you said, something that was another wake up call for you to do? Oh, incredibly easy decision. I mean, not to be offensive to my tutors at the time, who were very nice people, but the the course was just a complete waste of time. And I wasn't enjoying living in London where the university was based and I didn't see myself getting any professional opportunities at the end. And, you know, I was in the midst of the illness. So, yeah, dropping out of university was probably one of the easiest decisions I've ever made, including what to have for breakfast this morning. So, I mean, obviously, after it, there's a fear of what are you going to do now? But, yeah, unless you've kind of killed someone or just jumped out of a plane, whenever you're young, you shouldn't panic too much. There's always something else you can do. Let's talk about recovery now. So why was the move you made to Poland such a big part of it? And how did you go about going on this journey as well? Because obviously recovery isn't linear, especially for people who have gone through eating disorders. But what did you discover about yourself too? Yeah, I mean, for a long time, I was kind of recovered, but not recovered in the sense that I could be very functional in life, but I was still held back from enjoying life and as much as I could and accomplishing as much as I could because I'd kind of reached a point physically and mentally, and then just neglected to go further. So I still had pretty eccentric eating habits. I was still more underweight than I should have been, if not so unhealthily. I think moving to Poland, as it could have been if I'd moved anywhere, but I think it forces you to be independent moving somewhere else. And that can be very successful or an enormous failure. Fortunately for me, I came to just a beautiful place and I met some wonderful people. So that gave me the conditions in which I could relax and come into myself as I should have done years before. Speaking of beautiful people, you wrote a sequel to that article, The Year of Cold, called Beer and Recovery, where you put a large amount of your recovery down to a friendship with a barman. 
and taking up drinking before it became unhealthy for you. So why was this friendship and relationship so important for you? As my listeners might be surprised by the latter method. Was it connection? Was it a distraction from those calorie counting methods? What can you tell me here? Uh, Well, first, if you're moving to another country, meeting a barman is just great because, like I said in the piece, they can introduce you to everybody who comes into the bar. So it's like you're befriending the most popular guy in the room, even if that's not how people would see him. Obviously, yeah, I mean, drinking, obviously, it's not something I'm going to recommend to other people. It could have gone catastrophically wrong. There's There's an alternative universe where me and my friend are just now kind of sitting on a pub floor surrounded by our own vomit. So again, this is not meant to be prescriptive. But I think it was such a good friendship. We had so much to talk about. And whenever you form a friendship like that or, you know, a romantic relationship or even like a really great relationship with a team of colleagues, it's very affirmative in the sense that you think, well, if other people like me, I must, I can't be that bad. Or I could even be better. It just gives you more positivity about life in general. And I mean, specifically drinking as as perverse as it is, it's much more difficult to be very strict about what you're eating and what you're drinking. At least it was for me. So life doesn't always work out as it should. I want to move on now to the final part of your mental health journey, which you want to discuss, Ben, is the work that you've done on the Internet's effect on our collective mental health. And as you put it, the bizarre ways it can influence the human consciousness. So what would you like to say here? The Internet is a wonderful thing in the sense that we can speak to so many different people that before it we would never have got the chance to communicate with. And they can be people who share our interests, who share our passions. Uh, Just so many great people I've had the chance to interact with. I mean, they can open up huge professional opportunities. Before the internet, there's not even a 0.001% chance that I could have had a writing career from a small town in Poland. In many ways, it's a tremendous blessing. But as with everything in life, it can also be a tremendous curse. There's a sense in which it can be an unsatisfactory alternative to a real social life. So, for example, you referenced this friendship that I had in Poland. And yeah, I should have emphasized, like, I'm so grateful to my friend. We're still best friends today and many other friends and relationship I've formed since then. And they have a kind of depth to them that it's very difficult to get online. I'm sure we've all had friends online who just disappear because, you know, they decided that Twitter was a waste of time. They didn't have the time to blog anymore. Their boss pulled them into the HR team's office and told them to stop making such offensive jokes online. And it's very easy to forget about them because you didn't have that depth of connection. They weren't the people you were going to see the next day. They weren't the people you were going to meet up with at Christmas. It's difficult to replace that richness of real life. Also, I think it creates unhealthy incentives in terms of how to kind of present yourself because all online milieus have fairly weird dynamics in terms of how to get attention. And sometimes it has at least something to do with hard work and talent, but sometimes it is who is behaving the most eccentrically, as in real life, you know, who is being the most offensive. Shitposting. Mm. Yeah, shitposting, absolutely. God bless it. <laughs> who is, you know, who has the most disastrous private life? It's an example I used in a recent essay on internet culture for the critic is this poor guy on YouTube who does these mukbangs, which is when he eats tremendous amounts of food. And there's a kind of tragic journey you can take from the beginning of his YouTube channel to the end, where in the beginning, he's this smiling, healthy looking, trim young man who loves playing the violin. And because he got attention and income from eating tremendous amounts of food now, He's just this morbidly obese heart attack waiting to happen. So you have to be careful as much as it can be great to get the attention, especially if you're someone who maybe didn't get it or doesn't get it in real life. You have to be careful with how you're getting that attention because it can make you a more unhealthy person in the long term, even if it seems great at the time. There's obviously a lot of chatter about social media as a concept at the moment at time of recording ben obviously with elon musk take over of twitter and everyone's sudden panic that it might have gone down last week where do you see social media going in the future do you think people will 
more and more turn off it because of the mental health impact? Do you think it will change? Do you think it will go out of fashion? What is your perspective? Well, I hope that we can get more balance in the future. I think, as I argue in this article for The Critic, I think to some extent social media has been taking the strain as we've allowed civic institutions to wither. You know, pubs closing, churches emptying, civic organizations closing down. So I hope post-pandemic and post-lockdowns, we're going to somehow find some way to rebuild these real-life institutions where people can meet together so they don't, they're not compelled, forced to go online and scour the timeline for people to talk to. I'm not sure that will happen, but I hope it does. But we're still going to love social media. I mean, fundamentally, if you live in a town with 20,000 people, you're not going to have as many people who share your niche interest and passion as you are online. So uh, it's not going anywhere. Probably Twitter isn't going anywhere. But I hope there is going to be at least a little bit more balance, especially with young people, because, you know, they're the ones who are going to replace us in the future. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now. So the first question I wanted to ask comes back to this issue of control. So now, do you feel in control or have you completely separated yourself from feeling controlled, ironically, by the issue of control? Uh, Yeah, I think so. I think I'm a driven person but I hope in more healthy directions. Like there's absolutely nothing wrong with giving yourself rules, with, yeah, with trying to control yourself. I mean, if I was just completely gave in to my baser inhibitions, then I might just slob around drinking Polish lager and browsing YouTube. So I try to impose control in actually productive directions. So over my career, over my private writing enthusiasms, over going out into nature, over meeting friends, to some extent, you know, trying to be a service to other people, although I don't want to kiss my ass too much there because I could very, very easily be more of a service to other people. But yeah, I try to take that aspect of myself and put it to good work rather than making it something pathological. And as a final question before we move on to our quickfire mental health chat, A, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and talk to the Ben who was in the grips of that Eden disorder or the Ben who was considering dropping out of university or the Ben who was considering moving to Poland, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I think I'd be terribly tempted to just kick my own ass, which would not have been helpful at all because, I mean, my parents, bless them, decided to just kind of put their faith in me that I was going to recover in my own time which eventually worked out working so i think me being a less nice person than my parents it's probably good that i didn't meet myself so yeah i should probably stay away from my past self that's a very unique answer i haven't had that answer before the podcast so that's good i don't think i have the requisite emotional intelligence uh me moving to poland i think yeah i would i wasted my first year here So just in a practical sense, if anyone's moving abroad, I would say really take the initiative to go into that bar, go into that restaurant, sign up for that tennis class, whatever, go out and meet people because they're not going to come to you. So I would have tried not to waste that first year, but it all worked out. So you can't Monday morning quarterback or whatever the hell uh, English equivalent to that would be. Our final topic of conversation, Ben, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health at the moment, mate? I mean, I think it's decent. I think we never really know until later because generally we're pretty ignorant of our own vices. So hopefully in 10 years, I don't say, oh God, what a delusional guy he was saying it was pretty good. But I, I mean, I think it's pretty good. I'm happy when I get up in the morning and generally I fall sleep fairly easily at night. I don't think you can expect much more from life. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Um, I Yeah, I've been a very introspective person. So I think I probably just thought that was life from a very early age. I wouldn't have given a name. That was just me. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to say I was born that way because it sounds very... <laughs> 
self-aggrandizing. Yeah, I think I think that's just how I naturally experienced life. Can you remember or tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? How did it go? And looking back, did it feel like a big moment or perhaps a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other hand, did it feel like something quite insignificant, easy and normal to do? Probably relatively late. I'm guessing it's the kind of thing they do just talk about in school now. And I don't remember having that at all. Or if it did, I just wasn't listening at the time. So I think it was probably in church, oddly enough. Hmm. But I think it was the kind of thing where, because it was with adults, I was thinking, God, they just don't understand what it's like to be young and teenage. And, you know, they came out of the mother's womb age 40. Um, so it's difficult to relate to young kids because young kids do think of life through their own specific lens that they can't imagine anyone else could comprehend. And I mean, I sound derisive, but that's exactly how I thought as well. That's just mm-hmm. a natural part of being young. So. I'm pretty sure it was at church and I'm pretty sure I didn't take it seriously at all. Fair enough. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So, for example, this could be things people say to you, a particular sound, a sensation, a social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? You're probably things people say or things people don't say when you expect them to say something. And also kind of perceived failure. Mm. That risk sounding very unhealthy again. I mean, again, sometimes that's a good thing because you really have failed and you need to do better in the future. But still, sometimes I'm sure I... I worry too much because I wrote an article I didn't think was up to my usual standards and actually I should just move on from it and not care so much. So, yeah. Conversely, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Exercise. It has a bit of a bad reputation now advising that people exercise. And obviously, if someone had clinical depression, you were like, well, why not go for a jog? (laughs) That would be preposterous. But I think for the kind of the average person's stresses and dark nights of the soul, it can be a good tool. Not necessarily. For some people, it just sucks and there's no way around it. But I find it quite cathartic. Meeting with friends, always good. Spending time with loved ones, pretty classic things. And just fundamentally writing as well. I mean, it's how I order my thoughts and emotions professionally, but also just by myself and how I can kind of make sense of and experience and learn how to learn from it and move on from it. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related or self-help related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. If it's not a book, maybe a play or a podcast or a particular piece of film or TV show. Um, God damn, I knew I had an answer to this question. (laughs) Yeah, sadly, I think I'm going to have to completely blank on this one. I know I had an answer, but now I can't remember. Was it fiction or nonfiction related? It was nonfiction. I think the thing is, generally, when I read something, I'm so much trying to experience someone else's consciousness or someone else's imagination that I don't necessarily relate it to my own. And also, to some extent, I spend so much time thinking about myself that if I'm enjoying some kind of external product i try and step outside of myself so i'm sure there are examples but for whatever reason they're just not coming to mind that's all right mate i've got two questions left the first one is if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health what would it be and why i'm trying to say this in a way it won't sound like something that someone would you know put on a piece of card and stick to their wall above the (laughs) live live, love love you mean yeah (laughs) Uh, but i think Be honest, both with others and with yourself, as much as that's possible, and do things that make you proud. Whereas that could be a creative thing, or it could be something that kind of makes you feel morally proud, like helping other people, or it could just be, you know, improving whatever skill you have. Again, not always possible, because we don't always have the opportunity to do those things that make us proud. So no disrespect intended to people in very unfortunate circumstances. But you know, where it's possible for me to write a really good article rather than watch an episode of Seinfeld for the three billionth time, that helps my psychological health, certainly. And as a final question, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if most importantly, they want to do it? I think we need to 
devise ways to have more social spaces for men. And that's very difficult to say because it shouldn't be in the kind of artificial sense of like, yeah, we're going to find this place for men and we're going to talk about men's stuff. I remember my old church had like a men's breakfast where men <laughs> could be men. And we're going to eat as men. And it, it can't be like that or it's just such such a like bogus construct. Yeah, Nobody's going to want it's, gonna it's cringe and forced, isn't it? Yeah. It is. But, you know, just having more, again, just not making pubs prohibitively expensive, giving that extra funding to sports teams and whatever pursuits men enjoy doing to be men and encouraging people to form relationships and to do productive activities. There is some extent to which awareness, even if I was kind of shitting on it earlier, there is some extent to which, you know, I think there probably are young men who really can't comprehend of the fact that they could suffer from an eating disorder, for example, in the same way that a woman could. So a kind of more specific awareness, I'm sure, could be great. And an awareness also in professionals that that's something they have to be aware of. And not kind of pathologizing people's support systems. Maybe I see that because I'm an extremely online person who writes about politics. Like, I'm not sure the extent to which the average guy in the street or boy in the school meets this kind of hashtag men need therapy, hashtag toxic masculinity stuff. Maybe it seems more of a problem to me than it actually is. But not unnecessarily pathologizing mostly male ways of thinking if they are actually of service to people rather than harmful to people. That's a lovely nuanced take, mate. And on that note, Ben Sixsmith, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Ben Sixsmith for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him. I'll put some links to where you can read Ben articles we discussed in full, subscribe to his Substack if you want, and follow him on social media in the show notes. I'll sign us off by saying, as always, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media, tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, you can write us a review on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and help us out with those glorious algorithms. If you want to support us even further, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or you can buy a Vent t-shirt. Those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Bye.